Well, good morning again. We are picking up in our series on Mark here. We've been working our way through there, and we're getting into the last act. Uh, last week, we talked about the, the Last Supper and saw Jesus and his disciples on their way to the Mount of Olives. And uh, that's where we pick up in verse 32 of chapter 14. Mark 14, starting in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came back and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs and the chief, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber? With swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran, ran away naked. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, if we come here to rest in Jesus, to be reoriented and revigorated, we need God to speak by his spirit to illuminate his word. So let's pray. Father, we need you to speak to us this morning. We need, your, we need to hear you in your word. We need your spirit to illuminate it so that we might understand more deeply the riches of the grace of your son. So that our lives might be changed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this week, I, uh, I heard about an article uh, in GQ, which is not really my normal reading, uh, but it was an article about uh, Justin Bieber. 
And uh, it is a, it's about how, you know, he was young when he became popular and had all this money, and his life has kind of been a train wreck for a while, which is pretty publicly documented. Um, but he has gotten married and sort of come back around to his, to his faith, and this was an article about, about that. And honestly, the, the, the stuff about Justin Bieber himself, I didn't really find that interesting because I don't really care much about Bieber's music. Um, and quite frankly, even a lot of the stuff about his faith I still found a little bit concerning. But what was interesting was this aside. As, uh, as the author of the article was beginning to tell the story of, of Bieber and his faith, he put this in. He said, he says, uh, you do not need to feel sympathy for people like Justin Bieber. People who ask for attention, money, fame, as many people do, and actually receive all three, as most people don't. Now, to be fair, he does come around to trying to make him a little bit sympathetic, but that line, you do not need to feel sympathy for people like Justin Bieber, is surely a sign of the times. A graceless age. Not because Justin Bieber is a good person, I have no idea. And again, there's plenty of unpleasant things that are publicly documented. But the idea that somebody whose life, somebody who wants to turn around their life, shouldn't have any sympathy, speaks to our disposition. That despite, you know, and, and, and honestly, maybe you think the same thing. Or maybe there are other people that we think the same thing about. We don't really need to have any sympathy for them. We may have a doctrine of grace, but rarely do we have a disposition of grace. And to understand what a disposition of grace is, we actually have to pass through judgment. This is important to understand. Because what this article does is pass judgment on Justin Bieber, unequivocally. But grace takes us through judgment. It doesn't leave us there. This whole passage is actually framed as being about judgment when Jesus prays that the cup would pass from him. I'll talk a little bit more about that cup in a minute, but that is a sign of judgment that frames this whole thing. What is about to happen to Jesus? So why does Jesus endure judgment? It's important to see as we think through what's going on in this passage, we see that he endures it for our failure, our idolatry, but most of all because of his obedience. Let's start with our failure. Uh, the disciples are with Jesus and they are they're Jesus' followers. Whenever we're in the Gospels, we're supposed to, if we're supposed to understand who we are as Christians, usually the people we should identify with are the disciples. And they, they're, they're, in, they're going into the garden, and Jesus warns them to keep watch in verse 34. Keep watch. Stay awake. This is an important verb. Uh, Gregoreo, or the, the command is, 
Gregory, Gregory, can't pronounce Gregory Gete, Gete. And this is what Jesus has said. If you remember back to chapter 13 that we looked at several weeks ago. Chapter 13 is that long apocalyptic passage. And Jesus said multiple times over and over and over again, stay awake. Gregory Gete. Stay awake. Keep watch. It's the same verb. Remember, that was Jesus, that was Jesus' main direction to them. As he was telling them that the crisis was coming, was stay awake, keep watch. And that's the same thing he says to them here. In other words, the crisis has arrived. Keep watch. That's what he tells them. And of course, they don't. They keep falling asleep. (laughs) I mean, it's late at night. They had a couple of glasses of wine. Uh, during the Passover meal, right? I mean, they're out there. They fall, keep falling asleep. And this is the thing. Jesus isn't looking for their help. Jesus has no intention of taking their help. When we're, you know, the guy draws the sword, we're told it's Peter in the Gospel of John. Uh, when Peter pulls out the sword, Jesus doesn't want his help. That is not what Jesus is looking for. And in fact, he's already said that they will abandon him. He doesn't expect that they will even succeed. But he doesn't want to lead them into temptation unaware. And so this is a warning, right? And even when he talks, when he wakes up Peter in verse 38, right? That famous line, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. They cannot follow through on even the most simple things that they're called to. And this is an important aspect of understanding what sin is. It is a failure to follow through on what we're called to do. God gave us his law, and we don't live up to it. When Jesus gives this simple command, they fail. Stay awake. And they can't do it because sin is more powerful and more pervasive than we like to admit. We would rather flatter others and flatter ourselves by thinking it's not that much of a problem. But it is. The spirit might be willing, but the flesh is weak. Paul unpacks this in Romans 7 at length. I'm not going to go to that passage this morning, but uh, if you want to think more about that, right, this is exactly it. Is even when we know what we're supposed to do, And even if we want it to follow through, we often fail over and over and over again. And of course, what Jesus has told them what happened comes to pass in verse 50. They all flee. Everybody. We'll see in a couple weeks that Peter does follow behind. I guess kind of skulking around in the shadows following the crowd. But Everybody else leaves. We even get this bizarre little detail of a guy who's in a, he's apparently in his pajamas. He's in just like a light linen cloth, right? And so when one of the guards aggressively grabs him, it just rips away. And all he can do is run away naked. What a metaphor for what it means to be a sinner, right? Uh, To suddenly find ourselves exposed and just run away. It's exactly what happens. 
in the first sin, isn't it? Someone finds themselves naked and hides. Well, look again, our, our language of sin is pretty thin in the modern world. We, uh, as one author says, it's usually associated more with chocolate and lingerie than anything else. Uh, that we don't talk a lot about sin. We don't use that language very much. Uh, and because of that, we have a hard time with the notion of judgment. I mean, these guys just fell asleep, right? I mean, this isn't that serious. Uh, so on the one hand, we, are, we take offense that God judges, that, that their failures, that our failures need some kind of judgment. On the other hand, we often think that God hasn't judged uh, those other people as much as he should. Uh, so on the one hand, we, we think that God shouldn't judge us. This, is, this was a more popular argument in the late 20th century. So if you're a boomer through maybe a Gen Xer, this is a very well-known, well-trod path that you're familiar with and maybe even a little bit sympathetic with, right? That God, God's own opinions morally seem arbitrary. He gave us a free will, right? So why should he judge us for using it? It often assumes that people are basically good. We like to think that about ourselves. It's convenient to think that about our neighbors. We're basically good. And the problem with that, of course, is, um, well, certainly the basically good part proves to be false time and time and time again. And more to the point, though, is that it misses the responsibility of God as a creator. If God has made this world, if it is his, and we are making a mess of it, if we are harming one another, I mean, does, isn't he responsible, right? I mean, any God that's worth his salt, any creator that's worth his salt that doesn't take responsibility for what he has made, it's not a very good God. It might sound like we're saying, wouldn't it be good for God to overlook sins, but that kind of God isn't actually good at all. Which has, you know, so the pendulum has now swung in the early 21st century towards those who say, yes, so God should judge, and why hasn't he judged? So if you're more millennial or Gen Z, right, this is more familiar territory for you. We recognize, of course, that there are evils out, out in the world, and we are outraged over them. Now, we're not usually interested that much in why God would think certain things are or are not. We have our own opinions, and we think those are the ones that matter. And so this, this kind of standpoint is weak beyond this point, on just this point, that it's so sanctimonious. That we think we have it all figured out. But of course, we look back on our great-grandparents, and we think, why didn't they see some of the evils they were involved with. Why didn't they see it for what it was? And we would do well to stop and reflect that our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, may look back at us and think the same thing. 
It is the height of arrogance to think we've reached the pinnacle of morality. Indeed, we can't even agree on it in our society, so we might do well to stop and be a little self-critical. More than that, this view demands immediate justice, which sounds good. If you're not on the receiving end, with time to repent and to change. You see, you know, we, I'm not suggesting that we ought to skirt justice. We ought not to stand for justice. But we ought to be at least a little self-reflective, that we err oftentimes, that we don't know the situation well, that we usually jump to judgment, and that cements us in an opinion that sometimes turns out not to be right. But if God is God, he does have to deal with it. You see, contrary to those who think God shouldn't be a judge, he has to deal with it if he's going to be good. And contrary to those who think they already know what God should have judged, well, be careful what you wish for. But this is why Jesus came, was to be judged for our sins, for our failures, for all the ways in which we disregarded his law. You see, God's solution to the the demand of judgment, of justice, is not to, to avoid it, not to skirt it, but to take our place. This is so fundamental to the gospel. It's, for some of you, that sounds like old hat. But recognize, this is exactly what's happening with Jesus, is this is the judgment day arriving Jesus is beginning the judgment day. It is the end of all things. It starts with his cross, with the suffering that he is about to endure. And we're going to think a lot more about this as we go. But it's worth remembering that, you know, a lot of, a lot of modern critics of the Bible, both, uh, well, Critics of Christianity as a whole, but even modern theologians have asked, like, isn't this just some legal fiction? This idea that somebody would take someone else's place. And there's an, I mean, that's not, it's not actually a strange thing to ask. It's a good question. And in fact, if we think in terms of the kind of modern Western society, it would be odd, maybe even wrong for somebody to do that. Even if we're thinking of a, the judge deciding to take the punishment for someone that they themselves are judging, that's odd. But remember, this is not what we're talking about. We are not talking about a modern government. We are talking about a king who is responsible for everything that goes on in his kingdom. And so a king that takes responsibility for his subjects is not a legal fiction. In fact, it proves his very worthiness to be king. To be judged in our place. And so on the one hand, we have the disciples who are failing, but then we have 
Judas and the crowd that show up, who are also, and more obviously, sinners. But what they are about is something, or they bring out, I should say, something more stark about sin, that it is idolatry. And we know this a little bit about Judas. We've been talking about him along the way. Judas, uh, Judas noticed the pattern of Jesus going back to the Mount of Olives. We've seen Jesus return here a few times. Uh, and in fact, that passage in chapter 13 that we talked about, the stay awake passage, they were at the Mount of Olives. Judas has learned the pattern. What Jesus does is goes, he goes back to the Mount of Olives at night, probably to pray as he's doing here. We, we know all throughout the Gospels, Jesus is always looking for time where he can pray. And so he's found the Garden of Gethsemane that he can go, a quiet, out-of-the-way place to pray. And so that's where Judas brings them. And these are the guards from the religious leaders, but also some kind of other crowd that has formed around them as well. Uh, that's, who, that's who's showing up. And Judas needs to mark out Jesus because it's dark. This is, there's no electricity. There's no lampposts around the garden. There's nothing. It's dark. Maybe somebody's got some torches or a lantern or two, but they, and who knows, could this crowd even pick Jesus out of in broad daylight? No, no, Judas needs to make sure that they find Jesus. That's why he is such a useful tool in the midst of this. But Judas, of course, picks an act of affection to betray Jesus with a kiss. This is, you know, the kiss on the cheek, which is common in plenty of cultures, right, as a, as a, a greeting, but it's, it's an affectionate greeting, right? You don't greet some stranger that way. Uh, this is someone you know, uh, which itself is, of course, the sign of him being the betrayer. And they show up with force, And this starts to bring out the contrast between what Jesus is about, what his kingdom is about, and what they think the kingdom should be about. We've seen in a lot of ways this contrast before, but it really becomes sharp here. When when Peter draws that sword, Jesus rejects it. You know, we're, we're told in Matthew, he turns to him and says, you know, those who live by the sword die by the sword. He heals the, the guy who has his ear chopped off, we're told uh, elsewhere. It points to the cowardice and the fear out of which the religious leaders are responding. All they have left is force. They have a conflicting vision of the kingdom. They think it should be something else. They don't like the kind of kingdom Jesus has been preaching. I mean, for one thing, it has very little place for them. And they want to focus on their external enemies. And what Jesus has been saying is you've got to start with the house of Israel. You've got to start here. This is probably why Judas has been grown disenchanted. That's not what he thought he was signing up for. Again, we've talked about some of this before. They dreamed of something else. And this is important. If we want to understand sin and why judgment is necessary, we actually need to understand this deeper aspect of sin. Sin, yes, 
is breaking God's law. And that's the place you've got to start if you want to understand what sin is at work in your life. But if you want to understand something deeper, then we have to get to the question of idolatry. What we worship, what motivates us, what Tim Keller calls it, the sin beneath the sin, right? It is the, it is the connective tissue, the deep commitments of our lives that connect all those individual sins to one another. Sin, in other words, if you want an image, is like a vine that grows out, right? And you can, you know, pull off different parts of the vine, right? But until you get down to the roots that's spread out, (laughs) unseen, uh, underground, you will not be done with it. You will not understand what is really going on, why it keeps popping back up. Granted, in new places and in new parts of your yard, (laughs) you've got to dig down to the roots. You see, what they want is just like Adam and Eve, a vision where they're at the center. And this is really what pride is all about, isn't it? It's putting ourselves at the center. And we imagine pride as simply thinking of myself as better than other people. That's not actually it. I mean, it is true that, you know, and we know of cases like where there's overt malignant narcissism and we can see pride at work there. But pride is not so much that I assess that I'm better than everybody else. It is that I think I'm at the center of what is and what ought to be. So that you may, you, you may have grandiose dreams of being famous, <laughs> of being well-known, of being wealthy, of having a lot of power. Or you might just have modest dreams. Getting rid of your debt. Having a comfortable house. A stable career. I mean, that just, right? That's just normal stuff, right? That can't come from a place of pride. Well, maybe it can If I'm at the center of what's going on, if everything about my faith hinges on the things I want out of life, then maybe just having modest dreams is just a way of convincing ourselves that we're not actually that self-centered. But this is what idolatry is. It It makes ourselves the center of the story of what's going on. And when Jesus takes our place, we learn something powerful but hard to swallow. That we are not. That our lives are not really at the center. That Jesus is. That all of history hinges around him. You see, he consistently teaches us to lay down our lives for others. right? To be selfless. And it turns out that Jesus is going to show the full extent of his kingdom by actually being the most selfless. By laying down his life for us. You see, sacrifice is the key for doing away with idolatry. It is the key that unlocks a new vision of the world. A different way of understanding our lives. 
It is Jesus as the king laying down his life for those who have done evil, for those who dream of having their own kingdoms, their own little petty kingdoms. It is Jesus laying down his life for us in our silliness and in our sinister desires. It teaches us to see the world differently. Uh, the Christian philosopher James K.A. Smith in, in a recent article writes this. He says, as a young Christian philosopher, I wanted to be the confident, heresy-fighting Augustine, vanquishing the pagans with brilliance, fending off the Manichaeans and Pelagians. Those were some of Augustine's. <laughs> you may not know those words. Uh, with ironclad arguments, but as a middle-aged man, I dream of being Mr. Rogers. When you're young, it's easy to confuse strength with dominance. When you're older, you realize the feat of character it takes to be meek. See, humility is only really learned at the cross. We can posture that we don't dream of being at the center. Maybe you've learned habits growing up, in your, maybe in your current family, right, where you defer to others. But we always harbor the hope that things are going to work out exactly as we wish, exactly the way we dream. But when we go to the cross, we see a kingdom that works differently. We see the king himself who's given his life for us who's entered into judgment on our behalf. We see the power of it at work in ourselves and in, in other people. And that changes our imagination. This is where the disposition of grace comes from. It's not merely that I understand that he has done it, but that in fact, I start to see the world differently because of it. This is what the Pharisees never saw, what the religious leaders never saw. I mean, many of them, in terms of doctrine, were pretty much right on. I mean, there were things they still had to learn with Jesus coming, but they seemed to have all the right answers. But they hadn't been gripped by God's grace, they knew about grace but they hadn't experienced it. Which gets us to Jesus. He died for our failings, for our idolatries, but most of all because of his obedience. And really the, the center of the drama here is Jesus in prayer. This is the centerpiece of it. Verses 35 and 36. I mean... In one sense, everything we need to know about prayer, by the way, is here. <laughs> but he begins by calling on his father, Abba, Father. You might know this, but Abba is the Aramaic. The, the ah sound at the end is a, well, it's grammatically speaking, it's the article, but it is a way of, is a term of endearment, it makes it a term of endearment, of familiarity. Jesus is calling on his father. 
In fact, this is, so, this, is, this is such a significant moment that you actually hear Paul allude to it twice in Romans 8, 15 and Galatians 4, 6. There's no reason why he would use the term Abba Father, use an Aramaic term when he's writing to Greek speakers, except that he's thinking about this moment. He's thinking about Jesus in prayer. He's thinking about how Jesus called out in his desperation to his father. And you see what Jesus does, it does is he's open about his feelings. <laughs> he's not hiding anything here. Just like all the Psalms, if, you, if we take time to read them, as the church has always done, right, if we take time to read the Psalms, we realize there's no need to edit your thoughts. As if that were even possible. Right? I mean, as if that weren't just a trick of the brain anyway, um, when we come in prayer, but you don't come with the edit. But here's the thing. We're not simply asking God to rubber stamp our feelings. We are asking God to change our perspective. This is what Jesus prays, right? Not my will, but yours. He's asking if there's any other way, let's do that. But if not, not my will, but yours. In this moment, this, this prayer here, I, I can't even tell you how much has been written over the last two centuries about this. Going back to the very earliest of the church fathers, I mean, th- this, this is a mind-blowing moment because it's a moment where we understand more about who Jesus is as both God and man. It's a moment where we understand more about who God is as the triune God, especially between the Father and the Son. There are all kinds of things that are happening here. And it's important to see this, though. It's not that Jesus doesn't know what's going to happen. Of course he knows what's going to happen. He's been predicting it. He sees clearly what's going to happen. He is going to not only be crucified, but to be judged to endure hell itself. And it's not that he didn't know and it wasn't part of his plan. Right? This was the will of God. Father, Son, and Spirit, having one will in eternity past to go and do this. But now that he has taken on flesh, now that he's become human and has to deal with what they've decided, right? He is asking, is there any other way? He wants to, Jesus wants to avoid death, understandably. If you could avoid hell, right, you would take the option. But he is bending his human will to the will of God. See, Jesus is deciding to enter into judgment here by submitting to his Father. Again, not that, the, not that they are out of step with one another but that he will follow through with what they had decided. Before creation, before time existed, what they had decided, he will follow through and he will take up the cup. As I mentioned, it's a, it's a symbol of judgment. You can look in Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25. Uh, Psalm 75 makes it real clear in verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it to the dregs. It is a sign of judgment. 
to be forced to drink a poisoned cup. And he follows through with it when the, when the guards arrive, the mob arrives, and they arrest him. He says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. The, Jesus decides when he's in prayer that he will follow through. Despite everything in his human nature crying out against it. That he will follow through. And I wondered, you know, I was scratching my head, what does he mean by let the scriptures be fulfilled? <laughs> what is he thinking about? We've talked a little bit about this before, and we will see some specific scriptures in, in the coming weeks. In next week, we will hear Jesus directly quote from Daniel 7, the, the prophecy about the Son of Man who suffers and then triumphs. Daniel 7 is probably on his mind. In a, several weeks down the road, we will see him on the cross quoting from Psalm 22, a psalm about his suffering and eventual triumph. Again, probably on his mind. But I think most of all, Isaiah 53 is on his mind here. Isaiah 53 is a passage that comes up over and over and over again in the New Testament, is alluded to in a myriad of different ways, and here's just a piece of it. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's thinking about judgment. He's thinking about what he'll have to endure. His task as the suffering servant has become, to whatever degree it was fuzzy in his mind, before it is crystal clear now exactly what it will entail. You see, our salvation is not a happy accident. We've seen this all along in this last week of Jesus' life as he intentionally steers into the storm. He intentionally turns into judgment on our behalf. He is not the victim of circumstances beyond his control. He is not caught in a trap. The circumstances are under his control and he is driving his own life off the cliff into the storm. That should be an encouragement. Though it is sobering that our lives are not out of control. They may be out of your control. They always are, more than we like to admit. But they are not out of God's control. And I'm reminded, as we think about what it means to have a disposition of grace, to rethink our lives, to imagine a different kingdom than the one that we usually imagine, I'm reminded of Hebrews 11 and 12. 
Do you, know, you remember Hebrews 11? Some of you will know this passage. It is the history of the Old Testament retold through the lens of everybody living by faith. By faith in something that they couldn't see. Some hope they had of God's work that lie ahead for them. And that Hebrews 11 ends and rolls right into Hebrews 12 with this. Therefore, in other words, because of all that stuff, <laughs> all that history behind us, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all those people that have run the race before us, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And here's the key, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him. Why does Jesus do this? Why does he choose to follow through with the plan? A plan he does not want to go through with in terms of doesn't want to endure what he's going to have to endure. He's happy to find another solution if there is one. Why does he go through with it? For the joy of saving us. For the joy of purchasing his people back. For the joy of establishing his kingdom which will not be shaken which will be secured, cemented by his blood given for you. You see, a doctrine of grace is fine. It is a fine thing. It's even a necessary thing for you to understand clearly how it is that you are saved by grace. But a disposition of grace is far better it can't be taught. It is only found by meeting Jesus. By dealing with him. You need to know the doctrines. You need to learn that stuff. But what he has for you is a kingdom that is not like the kingdoms of this world where he rules the one who is humble and meek who lays down his life for you and I. Who drank the cup for us. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us not merely an understanding of grace, not merely a knowledge of the doctrine of grace, but that you would give us a disposition of grace. Confident not on our own by what we've done, not confident in the things that we have, the petty kingdoms we have set up, but confident that Jesus has given his life for us and that whatever comes, whether simple and easy or complex and difficult, is in his hands and we are his children. We are the subjects of his kingdom, which will not be shaken. Would you give us confidence that we might have a real disposition of grace? 
confident of who we are in Jesus, humbled by his sacrifice, and generous to our friends and neighbors and family. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.